Hello and welcome to what I think is episode four of the Double Disillusionists podcast, uh, the world's most lo-fi election podcast, and uh, we're very proud of that. <laughs> my name is Dom Knight. My co-host is Mr. Andrew P. Street. On the other side of the world, kind of like the Bugle, only with much fewer resources and less funny. Hey, Andrew. <laughs> Top of the morning. And how, how is uh, Italy treating you? Oh, look, it, it, it seems to so far only sell um, margarita pizzas, but that's going very well for me. Hmm, excellent. Well, I mean, you've missed out on a lot here because, I mean, we, we just had the leaders debate, which was the first such such debate held on free-to-wear TV and not competing with a major football game at the same time, uh, which I think managed to determine that the leaders of both parties really, really, really know their press releases. But uh, did it actually achieve anything else? I'm looking forward to finding out. I didn't watch that. I only watched the elite Sky News People's Forum, and that was enough for for the next few weeks for me. Uh, Today's news poll says that the government is in trouble in four states, including the PM's own New South Wales. Should the coalition be visibly panicking about now? And indeed, are they, Andrew? Look, I I think at this point, if they're not uh, at at least, I would say 30% of them should be running around like chickens with their heads cut off and probably... I'd say 25% of Labor should be doing the same just to sort of maintain some degree of parity. And, uh, and that's especially true because uh, today Shorten announced his Great Barrier Reef funding plan and uh, the PM also confirmed plans for the same-sex marriage plebiscite to happen later this year, which really risks moving the conversation smack bang into the middle of where's the real Malcolm territory. Yes, particularly since this is an instance where we specifically know he argued against it, hates it, Wants it passed anyway, and yet he's just not doing it. And then his own MP's not even agreeing to stand by it. So we'll talk about that. And uh, also the Finance Minister, Matthias Cormann. This is another delightful little uh, thing that keeps coming back. He's refused to rule out a minority government with the support of the Greens. Everyone's gunning for second prize in this election. Is the idea of a working majority that can actually get stuff done? Already over. Now, our special guest for this instalment of the, the Double Disillusionist is uh, monthly contributing editor and writer on the Chasers election desk, which started annoying uh, the Prime Minister in the last 24 hours, Mr Richard Cook. Hey, Richie. Hi, guys. How are you? Ever so well. How is Chaz? Is he um, Is he still alive? He did a trust fall in front of Malcolm Turnbull and hit the ground pretty hard <laughs> from what I can see. He did. Um, I asked him about that, and uh, apparently the head hitting was just a pratfall in the classic slapstick tradition, and uh, his fall was broken by an AFP man. Brilliant! The clowning is, never stops. Isn't our fall, uh, all of our falls, broken by the AFP at one one time or another? Not in the case of a, of a notorious uh, marble table, I suspect. <laughs> Let's get on to the debate, Andrew P. Street. I think you're the only one of the three of us who actually endured it, but the mail seems to be that, if anything, uh, both sides lost and probably the Australian people into the bargain as well. Yeah, pretty much. It, it was um, it, it was kind of a, a masterclass in not answering questions. There were several times where particularly Laura Tingle had to kind of repeat what she had asked of both candidates while they kind of stuck very much to their talking points. Uh, if there was one thing that... that kind of came across, apart from that both have clearly done a lot of debating at a university level, it's that they um, they've basically got the same plan as, as far as I can work out, but they're but in reverse order, whereas uh, Turnbull kept emphasising that you need to have a strong economy in order to have health and education and fairness, and um, 
uh, Shorten, meanwhile, was basically just going, you need to have health, education, fairness, and economic growth will come as a result. And I, I think neither of them managed to particularly prosecute that case at all well. But, um, but as far as, as showing that they know their talking points and that they've read their press releases, I, I think their staffers will be very relieved. Richie, what was the, the mail on it in, uh, in Chaser headquarters? It sounds like maybe we should have all of the above, growth and health and education. Wouldn't that be delightful? <laughs> I think a, a kind of ongoing concern from the start of the campaign has been, um, you know, even before the sort of election broke, there was a lot of talk about how people were tired of three-word slogans. We wanted depth. We wanted complexity. And uh, one day into getting even a little bit of depth and complexity, there was a wall-to-wall commentary about how bored people were. So people might say that they want to eat their greens, but uh, serve them a big plate of kale and suddenly they lose their appetite. And I think it's a little bit the same here. Uh, I mean, reading over the the um, the debate, uh, it was kind of a nil-all draw. And in fact, some people who aggregated it found that the responses given by each leader um, were only about 100 words different in length. Um, they are sort of producing this... Uh, is boilerplate to tailor prescribed fittings. Um, and this is what happens if journalists jump on any sort of deviation as a gaffe, um, you know, a mistake. There's a bit of mythology in Australian politics that John Hewson lost an election because making a gaffe in a, um, in, a, in a leadership debate. And so you just see these people come on and essentially try and not make mistakes, and they did that. So do no harm is the, is the mantra of these things. I, I wrote a piece about how much I enjoyed the um, the last debate, actually, and the thing about that debate was that the questions were asked by members of the public and you had David Spears jumping in and um, try, insisting that they answer questions and sort of trying to pin them down, which he did quite successfully. But the thing was, um, because it was actually the uh, the esteemed, exalted voters asking questions, the, the leaders both went to almost ridiculous lengths to try and satisfy them. Bill Shorten, in many cases sort of promised to catch up afterwards and, and talk more about stuff. And you kind of got the sense some of the voters w- were happy to just get out of there rather than talk more to Bill Shorten. But um, it may be, dare I say, that, that Sky News is hit on a better format if if um, they simply refuse to, to deal with any of the questions from the moderators, uh, Andrew, and instead just, oh, um, just, just waffle the talking points. Well, absolutely. I mean, one thing about Spears was... Like I think he was quite a a forthright adjudicator, and yes, uh, whereas Chris Yulman was, I mean Yulman Yulman's an extremely good journalist, but he did give the impression that maybe he'd only been told ten minutes before that he was going to be sort of emceeing the whole thing when he <laughs> you know assumed assumed that he was just driving somebody there because he he definitely didn't, as I am didn't to have debates. that sort yeah. of angry authority that I think was necessary for the role. So, Richie, 100 words difference between the two parties. I mean, given Labor right versus uh, uh, certainly a formerly wet Liberal, is that where we are? I mean, have we got two parties now that are almost indistinguishable uh, and is that why we're essentially so turned off by this election? Look, I don't think that they are identical. Um, I think that they just follow a similar form in different ways. I mean, people have done studies which have shown that you know, the level of governmental spending in Australia between the two parties and the level of taxation often stays very constant. And that's an area where you would expect a significant difference. Um, 
But um, the fact that they're sort of forced to fulfill um, or choose to fulfill these these criteria doesn't mean that they're identical. And, and you know, um, they're probably closer to the centre than politics is in many Western countries in the world at the moment. But I, I certainly don't think that they're mm. images of each other. Well, in fact, I, I thought we were going to have uh, an election where there were clear policy differences. And at the start of the campaign, we were talking about housing. It really couldn't have been clearer with Malcolm Turnbull advocating building wealth and Bill Shorten, uh, you know, wanting to, to bring prices down and so on. Um, Andrew, what's your read on on what people care about right now? Well, I, I think that the two big ones, which I'm I'm assuming uh, Labor are kind of keeping up their sleeves until sort of closer to the polls, would be climate change and housing affordability. Because, I mean, they, they seem to be the, the two things that consistently poll as being sort of big voter concerns. I mean, there's, you know, there's other things where they differ, like, for example, marriage equality, but that's probably not going to be something that determines the election, whereas, you know, housing affordability, climate change, and sort of, you know, the, the, the standard sort of health and education stuff is probably more where middle Australia is worried at the moment. So I'm I'm assuming that the reason why everybody's kind of paddling in the shallow end of the of the argument pool at the moment is because they're saving sort of the 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 big definitive issues for closer to the poll um although that, i mean that's a guess the uh, today shorten launched his uh his fund to save the, the great barrier reef 500 million dollars if they get into uh, if they get into power and that that does seem like a real kind of shot over the bows because i mean this is going to be a proper election issue this is going to be some somewhere where the parties do really differ and where right now greg hunt has kind of you know caused no end of embarrassment with the uh with with his fairly mealy-mouthed response to australia being left out of the un report last week uh on with regards to particularly the great barrier reef and also uh tasmanian forest so it's an area where Labor can definitely make some ground and I'm guessing that's where they're planning to fight for the next little while because certainly if they're going to keep saying fairness all the time, I don't know that that's going to sort of engage anybody the way that, that, uh, that they need it to at this point. This ties in with the, the perennial question of which Malcolm Turnbull do we see. Lenore Taylor had a, a great piece a couple of days ago pointing out that actually within the, the Coalition's climate change plan, Greg Hunt has cleverly hidden the bones of an ETS, which will sort of emerge at some point. And I, I kind of wonder if this is a metaphor for where Malcolm Turnbull is more generally. He, uh, uh, we expected to see certain things from him, the stuff that we know he believes in. He's taken a lot of that off the table and continues to keep it off the table. And I suppose some of his supporters are hoping we'll see some of that stuff coming out of the picture. What's your read, Richie, on uh, on where he is? It sort of he seems a bit stuck in no man's land to me. Yeah, look, he is um, stuck being a compromise candidate between the electorate and his backbench. But, I mean, I'm, I think it's remarkable how little climate change is resonating as an, as an issue during this election. I'm not sure that it is a vote winner. I was talking to um, someone the other day who's a news editor, and they said that about 70% of the hits to their articles about the Great Barrier Reef were coming from overseas. It doesn't seem to be provoking hmm. panic here and there's a strange um there's a strange kind of latency for two big issues which elections have been fought on uh in the recent past one is climate change one is debt and deficit 
both of these problems, you can argue about their severity, but certainly both of them are worse than they were when the elections were fought over them. And they're both kind of not really anywhere to be seen. I think partly because Labor is not keen to run on an ETS. They are, though, aren't they? They just don't want to talk about it. Yes, they are, but you would be um, hard-pressed to know that from their campaigning. Uh, it's not something which is front and centre. It's, it's not something which is really part of the tur- uh, talking points. In fact, it's something they're trying to talk about as little as possible. Um, and it's not surprising when you look at the polling on climate change, it has dropped very considerably as an issue that voters uh, care about in the last 10 years. Mm. Uh, maybe it's, Andrew, these issues are being avoided because they play pretty badly for both sides. Um, they've both kind of ducked out of doing anything on climate other than cancelling the carbon tax, and Malcolm Turnbull doesn't want to sound like Tony Abbott and go on about that, uh, whereas also debt and deficit, both parties have blown out the the budget consistently Um so there are all these things that they just sort of don't want to talk about. What do you think, Andrew? Well, it could also be that, I mean, both those topics are, are things that aren't going to be sorted out quickly and cheaply and certainly not within three years. And so, you you know, I can imagine a very keen desire not to be sort of making any grandiose promises about either either topic, knowing that it's going to be thrown in your face at the next election where it's like, you promised to fix the debt and the environment, and it's still all not fixed. <laughs> so it's um. So, but yeah, I, I, I do. I, I mean, as I said, I, I still feel like it's more likely that this is going to be something that Labor belabor. <laughs> oh, how they laughed! Thank you. Uh, I, I think it's something that 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 might be brought up closer to the election because it does it it does seem like a fairly obvious point of difference but uh, but again maybe maybe that's you know as as we've said the entire debate seemed to be about avoiding any points of difference so maybe this is the the strategy for the time being of just trying to not offend anybody or or at least to offend the same people <laughs> quite possibly one point of difference that seems to have emerged though is malcolm turnbull coming out and saying trust me i'm a businessman this seems to be his pitch now uh, I've done this stuff, I've got the track record, I know how money works. Uh, I guess perhaps turning a potential negative, him seeming out of touch in the Mr. Harborside Mansion line, into a positive, Richie. Do you think uh, this is a Malcolm Turnbull trying to redefine himself in the public perception or perhaps a play to the success story? Because in the past he's he's seemed at various times not to want to seem out of touch and to seem like an ordinary bloke, whereas clearly he isn't. Yeah, look, I, I don't think he's ever sort of donned the high vest permanently or made any attempt to hide who, who he is. <laughs> um, you know, in, in response to Labor, certainly tried to paint him uh, early when he was taking the leadership as a rich guy out of touch and he wasn't apologetic about his wealth and managed to sort of neutralise that fairly quickly. I think this is more an ideological issue where Turnbull sees Australia at the end of the mining boom and he believes strongly that what's going to replace it is innovation and a kind of entrepreneurial spirit. And he's trying to, partly out of his personal experience, give the country a bit of a pep talk to get behind that kind of thing. And I think in Australia, that's a really hard sell, quite a risk-averse <laughs> culture. And, you know, we're mm. not going to become Silicon Valley overnight or anything close to it. So this is where we are, you know, a electorate getting told to get excited and not really quite getting excited. Ideas boom, guys. Guys, it's a boom. It, I think it actually took a lot of the thunder from Labor. From what I understand, they were 
um, going to go with the whole innovation next next uh, sort of new generation technology pitch to try and uh, paint Tony Abbott as the Luddite that he's admitted to being, um, whereas Malcolm Turnbull sort of jumped on that as Mr. Aussie Mail. So that's how he's travelling. What about Bill Shorten, Andrew P. Street? Is he a, do we have more of a sense of who of who he is? He certainly seems to have come slightly into focus over the, the weeks of the campaign so far. You, you get a sense he's doing a little bit better than uh, Malcolm Turnbull in terms of where they were at the start. Um, yeah, look, the, I, I think with, with Shorten, yes, but he's had a lot of room to do better in. I mean, the, the, <laughs> thing, about, the thing about Shorten is that nobody had any expectations for him, and so it's, a, you know, it's, it's much easier for him to exceed no expectations which is kind of the opposite problem that Turnbull has had, which is that people expected a great deal of him. You know, he's a very smart man. He's a very successful man. He's a very articulate man. And he was replacing somebody who, who certainly gave the impression of being none of those things. And so you know, Turnbull has had a lot of room to disappoint people while Shorten has had a lot of room to impress people. And so I'm kind of wondering whether the, the way that those, that the, the polls and the kind of the general sort of, vibe on both men is more a matter of sort of returning to the mean in both cases than any particular sort of growing passion for Shorten or growing dis even particularly growing disdain for Turnbull so much as people going like, well, they both seem competent. Yeah, it seems as though we're sort of uh, going slowly towards equilibrium on both sides, which brings up the prospect of minority government, as we said earlier. Richie, I'm wondering how you see this in terms of the overall way elections are working. We've seen in the US, you know, with Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, there are now two out of three sort of outsiders left in the piece, promising a change from politics as usual, whereas it seems that in the Australian election there are very few alternatives at this point. Last time there was a huge vote for Clive Palmer uh, and various other minor parties. Where are we at? I mean, is there any alternative to this system? We seem locked in an unhappy marriage with this um Westminster system that gives us these two parties that we don't like very much. Yeah, look, I'm not sure how deep the hatred really goes. There was a good uh, George Megalogenes piece today in the monthly in which he talked about this exasperation with party politics. But we're not trying to destroy the system the way that voters are in other countries. That may be because compulsory voting makes people more moderate. But, I mean, the, the Austrian election has had a phenomenal result uh, in Europe just recently, about 90% of the Austrian working class voted for essentially a fascist candidate and um, the two centre parties were just completely out of the running. So these are seismic events which really haven't happened, you know, in a generation or longer and there's no sign yet of that sort of thing um, even on the horizon really in Australia. Um, we tend to move a bit slowly on things um, we're insulated by our resources economy, um, but for whatever reason, our discontent is expressed in tracking prime ministers rather than voting in people who are, you know, very much outside uh, politics as business as usual. Yes, and in fact, getting rid of prime ministers has become business as usual. But I guess in the days of Bob Hawke, uh, John Howe, and probably even uh, Kevin Rudd, at least for the first two years, there was a sense that the majority of Australians liked our prime ministers, that they were people who 
had, you know, they, they might have been hated by some smaller elements, but they certainly had a comfortable majority of people fond of them. There was personal warmth there. And, uh, Andrew, I, I get the sense that neither of the two candidates here are anywhere near that level of, of personal warmth. There's no one kind of going, oh, good on you, Mal, or, hey, Bill, you're a champion. Well, I think they're also being judged a lot more harshly than they used to be because, you know, until very recently, if somebody got elected as PM, they were PM and there was no... I think people are now aware that the party can get rid of a prime minister that they're not happy with or a leader that they're not happy with sort of without any recourse to the ballot box, which was probably not at the forefront of everybody's mind in the in the 70s or 80s or, or 90s. And so I think that now that you know that that's an option and now that you know that, you know, the, the I mean, this is one of the things which I, I, I sort of am, am very intrigued by at the moment is that the electorate now knows that the biggest threat to Turnbull from kind of July 3rd onwards is going to be the Liberal Party because, you know, as soon as the the electorate are taken out of the equation, the next question is, will a reduced majority in the coalition uh, primarily losing the, you know, the exact uh, marginal seat holders that through their support behind Turnbull, because they could see themselves losing under Abbott, once they're gone, what's what's to stop the party from, you know, shafting uh, Turnbull again, replacing him with a with Morrison or God forbid Dutton? That's less of a conspiracy theory and more of a, you know, a genuine <laughs> working strategy at this point. Are you detecting a draft Dutton movement anywhere out there, Andrew? Other than perhaps <laughs> from Peter Dutton himself, I look. <laughs> Well, look, I mean, Kevin Andrews just keeps, you know, he's ready for that. He's ready for that leadership run. He keeps saying I do it. enjoy his perpetual willingness to, to cast his hat into the ring, no matter how, <laughs> how little satisfaction there is from anyone else at the, at the idea of that. Um, nevertheless, there is a genuine prospect of, of Bill Shorten getting back into this. I mean, we've seen in Queensland and in Victoria, Labor leaders who were not favoured by any stretch of the imagination, throwing the hat in the ring with a sort of back to grassroots, back to basics campaign that seemed to resonate with people that talked about the issues that a lot of people care about, which had been off the table. Uh, Richie, do you think there's any chance here of Bill Shorten doing that, of continuing to, to gain momentum and kind of proving pollsters wrong, as we've seen? I mean, the opinion polls have seemed quite unreliable in some of the last state elections, at least. Yeah, that's true. I think that the difficulty here is going to be in the marginal seats. Um, it's not just that that Shorten has to gain ground. He has to gain ground in particular areas and the, the primary votes in certain marginal seats just look too low to do that. Um, but what can certainly happen is returning Malcolm Turnbull on a very much reduced majority or perhaps even getting to a, the point of being a hung parliament, which with the independents as they are you know, likely to be constituted, you would favour the ALP forming a government then. Yeah, we certainly seem uh, uh, to, to be repeating the 2010 election. We've discussed this before, but um, we're certainly not off that script at this stage. If you were forced to pick it at this point, just a little over a month out, Richie, do you think we're going to land on another 2010 result where really no one's satisfied with the outcome? Yeah, I think uh, I think it's going to be very, very close. Um, and if Turnbull is returned, there will be a scenario in which, you know, he's already had to run as a compromise candidate, as we've said, Um and he'll be kind of stuck in that role with the wind having changed. He won't have a mandate. He won't have has run as uh, as Mr. Progressive in the Liberal Party or wet liberal. Um, and so he will again be beholden to trying to reconcile essentially irreconcilable groups of people. 
Uh, and um, it's easy for prime ministerships to fall in par- into paralysis in Australia now, and I don't think he's will need any assistance. <laughs> Was it sensible, though, for him to do what he's done and to try and placate the backbench to the extent that he has? I, I can't imagine uh, those people, particularly with memories of, of what happened to Tony Abbott, I just can't imagine any circumstance where they would like Malcolm Turnbull more than they already do. And I wonder if he's trying to appeal to everyone to the point where he ends up appealing uh, to, to nobody. I, I wonder if he's played his hand well so far, Andrew. Well, I, I think the way that you get the support of the backbench is by looking like you're going to win an election. I mean, and that's that's what happened with Abbott and that's what happened with Turnbull. Uh, I think it's a straightforward mathematical decision. You look at the swing against the government, you look at the... Uh, uh, the margin by which you hold the seat and you add those numbers and if it has a minus sign in the front of it, you support a different leader because that seems to be about as much control as uh, as the backbench have at this point in Australian political history. I mean, I think the bigger problem actually, even more than the lower house, is going to be the Senate because I think when Turnbull came up with the idea or at least the, the when Cabinet came up with the idea of calling a double dissolution after pushing through the Senate ballot change, the idea was, well, under this circumstance, the, the Senate's going to more clo- closely resemble the lower house in the way that the votes fall, fall through. In January, that probably looked like it was going to be enormously beneficial to the government. And by the time it actually happened, of course, it's you know, it's more or less guaranteed. I, I don't see any... I haven't seen anybody predicting the coalition having anywhere near a workable majority in the upper house. And given that it's probably going to be a couple of independents, a Nick Xenophon block from South Australia and the Greens, it's, you know, I, I think the difficulties that Abbott and Turnbull have had with their febrile Senate, the, the, this, this, oh God, what are the other, the other adjectives have been throwing around? Feral? I think I prefer the Paul Keating, the unrepresentative swill line. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think the unrepresentatives will are going to be very, very difficult. Like to to a point that they're going to to hanker for the the halcyon days of two thousand fourteen. Well, as we've said, Anthony Green did warn them that uh, they'd probably be worse off. I on that basis, I kind of booked a holiday to Europe, thinking, mate, no, why they'd be so foolish as to have a double dissolution, <laughs> and, and yet here we are. Here I am in Venice talking about Tony Abbott and and Co. Look, it, it seems as though we are stuck in uh, a sort of political groundhog day. We keep having Prime Ministers who rapidly underwhelm us. We keep discovering we don't like either party very much and, and uh, head towards potentially another hung parliament. It's, is the system broken, Richie? Do we, uh, they've tried to fix the Senate up somewhat, but uh, is, there a, is there a greater malaise here? I think that's a really good question. And at that Prime Minister number four or number five in a row, depending on how you count it, I mean, this is, we've got enough of a control group to think, well, this is not just a personality problem anymore. Um, I don't think all that stuff about Australia being ungovernable is true, but for whatever Mm. reason, we're seeing a confluence of different forces acting on Parliament in a way which makes getting the authority to govern very, very difficult now. Uh, And even just kind of putting together an agenda which is coherent, um, which is congruent, which you're running through not just an election campaign or, you know, a period of time governing, but even a few days in a media cycle <laughs> can suddenly be very, very difficult. And I think trying to identify why that's the case is, is really hard. 
Now, I'm quite fascinated by this point. If Malcolm Turnbull loses the election, what will he have done? What will the actual legacy, like Kevin Rudd um, was looking for results and said we got through the GFC and and I apologised. That was sort of all he managed to come up with that, that people praised him for. But I don't even know what's on the Turnbull ledger really at all. Uh, they had a plan to to build some submarines in, in electoral ploy. It really will be nine months of just holding the fort, won't it, Andrew? I think that's particularly true of people like, say, Eric Abetz or Cory Bernardi. They always remind me of there was a, an Onion story which resonated deeply with me and the the headline was something along the lines of a uh, retiring city councillor proud of 10 years he spent preventing municipal pool from being built. And that that sort of feels like the story of a, of a particular element of the Liberal Party where their, their biggest successes have been preventing things from happening, whether that's a carbon tax or an emissions trading system or a... Uh, or marriage equality, or you know, in any number of things, the 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 one thing that they'll be able to say to their grandchildren is, "We prevented this from happening for a bit." And and I th- I think you know Turnbull and and to his credit, Abbott had plans and had had things that they wanted to achieve, which for one reason or another, either sort of because it couldn't get through the Senate, or because it couldn't get through their own party, or because it was an objectively terrible idea, has just not happened. And I think, you know, that was also true to a, a lesser extent of kind of the end of the Gillard era as well. That it's just we, we, we've had an uncomfortably long time of not really having a functional government. And, and actually, there was a, a piece, I can't remember who wrote it, but there was a piece on um, just recently on Shorten where they were comparing him potentially to John Howard and saying Howard wasn't that great an opposition leader, but he was a really, really good prime minister. He he. You know, he, he brought stability and indeed people got kind of bored with politics and they let him more or less do what he wanted. And they sort of raised the possibility that maybe, you know, a, a kind of competent workmanlike approach to government would provide the sort of stability that we need. And maybe Shorten being sort of a bit milk toast is actually, you know, would, would make for a good PM, which I, I thought was an interesting idea. I guess the thing with John Howard, though, in terms of that line, is that when in the last term, when he started uh, putting in some fairly extreme things via Senate majority. Uh, but uh, I think, Richie, and you've written about this, there's an interesting contrast with what happens at state level. Now, Mike Baird has not made everybody delighted with his plans of late. Um, there was a protest rally against him this weekend. But certainly he's someone who had a platform, ran on the platform, has been implementing the platform, and courtesy of fixed four-year terms, he can have two years of really not giving a stuff what the, the people think about what he does. He's very, very secure and stable, and he's brought about major reforms. He's, he's alienated, you know, just about every local council across the, the state. That is a, a big picture reform, whether or not you, you agree with the substance of it. There's just something different about the federal level that seems maybe it's the increased scrutiny, maybe it's the, the three-year terms, where it seems impossible really to, to, to launch big big picture policy. Well, I think um, really when we talk about state level here, we're talking about New South Wales. And if you look at what happened in Queensland, Campbell Newman tried to make exactly the same kind of bold picture reforms uh, mm. and they came a cropper very, very quickly. And that was With no upper house too. Mm. With no, yeah, <laughs> and, um, and, you know, that was not with the world's most effective opposition. It was just with a competent opposition. But 
I mean, people talk about Labor destroying itself federally um, under Rudd and Gillard, but, I mean, they really, really did destroy themselves in New South Wales comprehensively. Like yes. many, many voters in Australia, uh, in um, New South Wales, can't name the opposition leader. Um, it was one of the all-time great thrashings of, a, you know, essentially corrupt and completely dysfunctional government just drumming itself out of power for the foreseeable future. So in that yeah. environment... Um, it's not so difficult to make bold picture reforms, um, but uh, we're already seeing a, a kind of opposition come not from nowhere but from the grassroots in a way which is very unusual in Australia. Uh, do you remember that that extraordinary period, and you probably have to be from New South Wales to remember this, where just every week or two there was another minister that had to be sacked because of some appalling scandal, in some cases just personal stuff that was, you know, the police were looking into. They were shedding ministers like you know, dandruff for a teenager. It was just extraordinary. And and I guess those memories do persist. Maybe that is only a New South Wales thing, Richie. Maybe, in conclusion, the Westminster system is hopeless uh, and we should just have benevolent dictators. Andrew, are you up for that? Look, I... Uh... I have a lot of plans, uh, a, a lot, a lot of pretty dark plans for uh, for for Australia under my um, malevolent rule, and um, a lot of them do involve wombats. I'm not going to lie, and I, I think that's probably the way forward. A, wom- a wombatocracy is, I think, what what's called for at this point. Well, we've had a bunyip aristocracy. How different would that be? Um, <laughs> So I guess if, if, we're, if we're planning things out, it's looking more and more like the, the joy of a hung parliament uh, yet again. Although that said, Julie Gillard did pass a lot of legislation last time around. Richie, um, if, if that happens, given the way um, there, there doesn't seem to be a, a credible centrist party at the moment, um, is there any chance that, that a hung parliament could be a, a Turnbull government? Is, is there any chance they could make a deal with the Greens? Matthias Cormans flagged it. Um, but is that realistic? Uh, look, it's really, really difficult um, to see that happening. I think I think that there are members of the Liberal Party who would resign um, if mm. uh, they formed a coalition with the Greens. So you might not end up with a lower house majority anyway. Um, they, my guess is that it's more likely they'll um, convince other people to get on board, and then there'll just be government compromise, which is not such a bad way to run things. It gets a bad rap, but I don't think that it should in the way that it, it does. Yeah, look, I, I, I think a, I think a compromised government is actually a really good way to get good policy. It, it, the more that people have to argue and agree, the uh, you know, a, a, again, sort of going back to to the Gillard experience, certainly, sort of, you know, in the in the early part of her her term, uh, it was very successful, or, or after the election, I should say, in two thousand ten. I mean, despite uh, not having a lower house majority. They got an awful lot of stuff through, and and a lot of that stuff did, admittedly, then get either gutted or completely abolished as soon as uh, as Abbott got in. But you know, there was a period there where it actually looked like Parliament was motoring along. I wonder if for the third election in in the row, the the successful Prime Minister will promise to do something on election eve that then they, they immediately renege on and poison the well for themselves. That would be extraordinary if that happened a third time. So, look, if we're going to call it Richie Hat, do you think uh, a very, very narrow um, Turnbull lead? Do you think a very, very narrow shortened lead or are we looking hung? Um, I'm going to call it as a very, very narrow Turnbull, uh, Turnbull um, lead. 
but very narrow. Even though he seems to be running a pretty lacklustre campaign, you think he's doing enough to fall over the line, Malcolm Turnbull? I guess that's sort of his best-case scenario at this point. I can't imagine either leader really inspiring a mass revolution from here unless something really extraordinary happens. Until Kevin Andrews makes his makes his move, obviously. That's that's when this, this nation's going to go into a golden age. When has Australia gone wrong with a, a Prime Minister called, uh, called Kevin? Uh, all right, Richie, well, the, the, the Chasers <laughs> election desk, I think June the 8th it starts and we've had the guys out uh, doing doing stunts again. It's all, all very back to the future, I suppose. Yeah, no, it's very fresh concept. Um, it's uh, people going and getting in politicians' faces um, and there's a big desk, which is important. So you should tune in. Not you, but, you know, people listening should tune in. You definitely <laughs> should tune in. You couldn't have sold it any any harder there, Richie. That's it's a must see TV, clearly. Andrew, you're writing a book about all of this. Um, have you yet come to regret that? And are you getting it done? Uh, that's a yes to both. It's um, I, I just sent sent off another chapter today, and um, yeah, look, I'm not feeling good about it. I'm not feeling good about it at all. Ah, uh, oh, look, it's a someone's got to chronicle this bizarre era in our politics. May as well. You. Well, uh, Richie, we'll, we'll see your words uh, in, in the Saturday paper and the monthly in the, in the period ahead and uh, your big stunt concepts up on the screen very soon. Thanks, guys. And I'll speak to you uh, next time. Of course you will. Ciao. You can follow us on SoundCloud, you can subscribe on iTunes and we're all over a bunch of other podcasting services as well. And we'll be back in about a week's time.